Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lane Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A mountain of research has found that we tend to be attracted to partners who are similar to us. And that makes sense. But no matter how similar you and your partner are, there are always going to be some areas where you differ. And that can be a double-edged sword. Our differences have the potential to help a relationship thrive, but they also have the potential to drive partners apart. So let's talk about navigating differences in relationships in healthy ways. In this episode, we're going to focus more on dealing with differences when you're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. However, a lot of the information that we'll discuss is applicable no matter what kind of relationship you're in, because everybody has to deal with differences at some point. Some of the topics we'll explore include why it's important to name your differences, how to deal with different communication styles, how opening up a relationship can shine a spotlight on your differences, and much more. My guests today are Jessica Fern and David Cooley, the co-authors of the new book, Polywise, a deeper dive into navigating open relationships. Jessica is a psychotherapist, coach, and certified clinical trauma professional. She is also author of the book, Polysecure, which we spoke about previously on this show. David is a professional restorative justice facilitator who created the Restorative Relationships Conversations model, a process that transforms interpersonal conflict into deeper connection, intimacy, and repair. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. In today's increasingly digital world, it's more important than ever to understand the intersection between sex and technology, and also to preserve our rights and privacy. For a deep dive into these issues and more, attend this year's Securing Sexuality Conference, which will be held October 19th and 20th in Detroit, Michigan. This event will bring together hundreds of sex therapists, IT security professionals, medical providers, researchers, and advocates. Securing Sexuality is the premier conference for people who are passionate about promoting sex-positive, science-based, and secure interpersonal relationships. Attendees will come away with a deeper understanding of and appreciation for the challenges and solutions to building healthy relationships against the backdrop of emerging technologies, while also cultivating a meaningful global community of colleagues. Continuing education credits are available for qualified professionals. Check the show notes for the link or purchase your pass to the Securing Sexuality Conference today at securingsexuality.com. That's securingsexuality.com. The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the newly opened Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus which is open to the public from 9.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. You can also find two Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Wilsig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org. Hi, Jessica and David, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Hello, Justin. Thank you both so much for joining me. So the two of you wrote a book together titled Polywise, A Deeper Dive into Navigating Open Relationships. In the foreword to this book, written by Carrie Jenkins, she mentions that the two of you have been classmates, friends, lovers, husband and wife, co-parents, 
ex-husband and wife, family of choice, housemates, life partners, and now co-authors. So this is quite the journey that you've been on together. And, you know, I'm sure we could do a whole episode just diving into that. But as a starting point for our conversation, can you just give me the brief story behind the birth of this book and how your evolving relationship informed it? Well, the book started through my work initially with working with partners, working with people in multiple partner relationships. And really, you know, as a psychotherapist wanting to make sense of what's happening, (laughs) like people are coming and they so genuinely want to practice non-monogamy or feel that non-monogamy is who they fundamentally are. And there's these struggles. So I was really diving into doing research and client work of sort of what you see here, of trying to make sense of what the challenges are and offer support and solutions. But our relationship, you know, has been over 20 years in each other's lives. And we've written together in other places and we have different gifts of writing and and thinking and visioning things. And so it's a beautiful, I think, complementary collaboration. And so as I started to write this book, again, there are just points along the way that I was like, Dave's voice needs to be in here. And so he accepted the invitation. (laughs) Well, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Anything you would add to that, David? Yeah, I think it's also one of the places where we deeply connect. You know, we have just a love of diving into process. It's sort of a borderline obsession between the two of us. I, I don't know as many people that want to process as much as we do and and we we just have a lot of fun intellectually talking about ideas and i think because we had so much experience together garnered through opening our marriage it just felt right to share that experience in a personal way because a lot of people that are coming to this material are having really intense and powerful lived experiences so it felt like that vulnerability is another way to create rapport and trust with readers Yeah, it definitely adds something to the book because you get to hear these different voices and there's that blend of clinical insights and personal experience that makes it very relatable. In a lot of self-help books in psychology and in relationships, it's often written in a very clinical way. But when you can bring in that very relatable element, I think that that makes it all the more powerful for the reader. So I appreciate you sharing that and a little bit about your very long (laughs) journey together. So in this episode, we're going to dive into one chapter from Polywise, specifically the one titled Dealing with Differences. And this chapter starts with a story about an opposites attract kind of situation, which is something I think many listeners can relate to no matter what their relationship style is. I mean, I can relate to it as well because there have been times in my own life where I've been attracted to someone who just has a totally different personality and approach to life. And those relationships were very exciting in the beginning but eventually became exhausting because we were just too different. But I've also had the experience of being with people who were so similar to me that while things started off great and very easy, they eventually became kind of boring, right? So I think this raises an interesting question that many people want to know the answer to, and I'm curious for both of you and your take on it. How important is similarity in relationships just at a general level? You know, can you make a relationship work with someone who's your opposite? Do you have to have some level of similarity? What do you think? Because I'm coming from all of this from a conflict transformation perspective, because that's really where my work is grounded, I'm really curious about how do we approach the issue of differences? 
right? And so I really want to understand clients' experience in terms of how do you feel about someone that you're deeply attached to being different from you, especially when you start talking about really deeply held values, beliefs, ways of parenting in situations where potentially the relationships have a lot of high stakes. I really want to understand how do we relate to differences just from the beginning on a paradigmatic level? Do we see those as threatening or do you see those as opportunities for growth, for more intimacy? And so I'm really curious to start out where are people grounded in terms of their relationship to differences? And so that's something that I think we really focus on is how do we look at that in a way that's not pathologizing the differences between us and other people and embracing them and then negotiating from that acknowledgement, yeah, we're different here. These are ways that we relate to the life and the world that are very, in some moments, incongruent. And yet, what can we do with that? How do we stay creative as opposed to just sort of inevitably slipping into conflict around those differences? So I don't know if there's any inherent formula, how different or similar do you have to be for a relationship to work? I think there are situations where potentially there are too many differences, and that would be a case-by-case assessment. But I don't think there's any real formula, and I think the question for me is more interesting is where can we start to be more creative in the way that we think about and approach differences? Yeah, and I would add it's sort of defining and getting clear about what differences matter, right? What differences are exciting and polarizing and stimulating and keep the relationship sort of in that, you know, novelty place even, and then which differences really make a difference. And so even I'm still learning this. My last breakup, on paper, we had so many similarities that at that time I thought were crucial, especially around like way of living and lifestyle and health and like how we related to food and our bodies. Like we were all aligned in the best way, but how we approached conflict and attunement were very different and it broke us apart. Right. And now the irony is I'm in a relationship where those initial things around like food and <laughs> are completely opposite. Right? <laughs> completely. <laughs> I never thought I would, you know, be in that. And yet the way that we approach conflict and attunement and like care for each other really aligns. Right. So I'm still learning even like how do we sort of get to the essence of what differences matter and what don't. Yeah. Yeah. And to add to that in the context of consensual non-monogamy, it's really interesting because you have the opportunity to get certain needs met in one relationship that maybe you don't get in another. And so some differences matter in some relationships and not in others, depending on what are the needs getting met and to what degree. And so it's really interesting to see that some differences don't make a difference here and over there they do. Yeah, it's a complicated question, right? I think it's an interesting one to ask, though, because there are a lot of for example, online dating companies that believe in the idea that similarity is the key thing above all else. And they'll try to match you on certain dimensions of compatibility with the idea being that if you just put the most similar people together, that they're going to be happier. But what we see in the research is that similarity in and of itself actually isn't a very good predictor of relationship success in terms of like whether people stay together and are happy in that relationship. So it's interesting because similarity is something that tends to attract us to other people. Opposites also attract in some cases as well. But 
just being similar isn't a guarantee that things are going to work out. So we need to think more carefully about whether we should just partner with somebody based on similarity alone, because it might not be enough. But as you discuss in your book, when people transition from monogamy to non-monogamy, this can sometimes have a way of amplifying differences that exist, right? And in any relationship, you're going to have some degree of difference between the partners. But when you open up, those differences might be experienced differently. So for example, if a couple opens up, one partner's more introverted and the other's more extroverted, that might create some tension. If the extroverted partner has an easier time developing more relationships or seems to be able to start them faster. So can you speak a little bit about how opening up can shine a light on partners' differences and how that can potentially become an issue? So I've just seen this again and again, that the paradigm shift of opening up, whether that's opening up from monogamy or in the book we really talk about, it's not just the opening up process. It can be just non-monogamous transitions, changing the level of hierarchy or nesting or relationships, you know, escalating or de-escalating. So when we have these transitions, it can expose differences that maybe were even compatible before or we appreciated about our partner, but now that we're in a different paradigm or let's say a different hierarchy of relating, right, or nesting, those differences can really be too far apart and they can start to create conflict that just didn't exist before. It's really fascinating. Or sometimes we really knew about those differences and maybe they weren't as compatible, but they were like lower grade (laughs) and the paradigm shift or the transition just amplifies them. Yeah. Sort of like what you're saying, you know, maybe a couple can navigate introversion, extroversion differences, but then as they're changing how they relate and date, it can become way big of a difference. Yeah. And I think also it depends on where people's skill sets you know, where are people's communication and where are people's values in terms of something like attachment? How aware are people of their own need for attachment-based security? And do they understand what are the behaviors that creates that for them? Because you could have a pairing between an introvert and an extrovert, and they're both in alignment around what actually makes them feel securely attached. And potentially those differences in personality aren't going to have such a big impact on their lived experience relationally. So I think when we start to ground in, okay, what are some of those key differences that potentially not are universal, but more across the board, I think thinking about attachment is really helpful. It's like, what does attachment-based relating look like to you? And are those the differences kind of underneath some of the other differences that are really in alignment or not? Because I think those can be some of the more make-or-break situations. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I personally know a lot of people who are in the introvert-extrovert pairings, and sometimes they work out beautifully. Other times they become an issue because the partners start leading these very different lifestyles and kind of stop growing together and end up growing apart. So I think almost any relationship combination can work. It really does depend a lot on the partner's skill set, their attachment styles, and how they choose to navigate these issues. But another area where differences can become an issue is in an open relationship where there's a communication style where each partner is kind of interpreting what the other is saying in a different way, right? Now, a lot of relationship communication, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, is prone to misinterpretation because we have a tendency to say a lot of ambiguous things like, I won't be out too late tonight. But what does 
too late mean, right? (laughs) Different people might see that in different ways. So can you speak a bit about when communication differences become a problem and the importance of clarifying vague and ambiguous things in our relationship agreements, like terms like safe, terms like sex, you know, these things, people might interpret them in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Because I think what happens is in non-monogamy, the stakes are a little higher or the consequences can be bigger of misunderstanding, (laughs) right? Because it's just more complex. We're dealing with more people and that increases the complexity, right? So we can't use in the same way these throwaway words like what's sex, what's late, (laughs) what's, you know, be home later, what's go have fun, right? (laughs) And so what we see is like default language that we would use, assuming we were on the same page, we may not have been even, starts to really break down, usually in non-monogamous interactions or in these transitions that people are going through. It's painful. And of course, it also is comical, right? As we give some examples in the book, right? Of just the words like, go have fun can be so drastically misinterpreted. And you have one partner who thinks that's permission to do certain activities and the other partner is left deeply hurt by those things. It can be kind of tedious because you have to start defining what we mean by the very same words. Yeah, there's a, there's a real invitation to increase our precision in our language. You know, I think about nonviolent communication and that concept of when we talk about behavior that's triggering to us, how do we describe that in a way that's an observation, you know, that's very time and place specific, very direct describing the behavior that we're not liking or that's upsetting to us versus overlaying a, an analysis, a judgment, an exaggeration or an interpretation. It's very difficult to do that already. And so I think in a context like consensually non-monogamous relationship, you have to really step up your game in terms of the precision of your language. What are you saying instead of really taking things for granted? Yeah. And when you have multiple partners, it opens up the fact that you're going to have multiple people with their own understandings and misunderstandings of the same terms or terminology, right? I know, and I've talked about this on the show many times before, that People are just all over the map when it comes to things like their definition of sex or their definition of what counts as safe sex, right? And so when you have multiple people navigating this, negotiating things together, uh, then you kind of have to, you know, really start from scratch in terms of making sure you're getting on the same page about all of these terms. So something you recommend in your book is naming your differences, and you suggest that people might actually want to sit down with their partners to do an inventory of their similarities and differences. So Jessica, tell us a little bit about why you think that's important and you know how you might walk somebody through that exercise. Yeah, I think it's important just for you know, the sake of transparency and exploring and getting to know each other and understanding the relationship better. Right. And where some of these similarities are beneficial or not and where some of the differences are beneficial or not. And so when people are struggling with, wow, there's a lot of differences coming up. What do we do about it? We can also forget how many things are working. So it's nice to do this inventory and you see, wow, there's actually a lot of things that are working. But then, you know, a systematic way of just looking at how do we sort of embrace our differences and allow healthy differentiation and negotiate it so that it can actually be navigated instead of just getting stuck in it? So I think we offer questions that people can go through. 
Yeah. And I think that's important because, you know, a lot of people, instead of acknowledging and owning their differences, they kind of ignore them, they hide them, they kind of sweep them under the rug. And when we ignore the differences, then that is where they can have the potential to become deep underlying issues in the relationship that start clouding everything. So I think this is an exercise that most people have probably never really done before with their partners, but it can be very useful, especially when we're talking about these kind of relationship transitions. Exactly. Yeah. How can we hold them together instead of ignore them? And not just ignoring them, but also how do we not pathologize them? Like, how do we actually honor them and invite a conversation that's celebrating the difference and connecting that to so this is what makes the relationship so dynamic? Yeah. Now, let's say a couple is in the process of opening up or otherwise they're engaged in some type of non-monogamous transition, and they've identified their similarities and differences, they've done exactly what you said, but something they might not recognize is that new differences can emerge that they haven't anticipated because practicing non-monogamy can change each partner, and sometimes it can change them in very different ways. And we're going to talk extensively about that in the next episode, but I wanted to briefly address it here while we're on the subject of differences. So in the book, you mentioned this concept of a game-changing relationship, a relationship where you meet someone who just totally changes how you show up in the world. So can you speak a bit about what a game-changing relationship is and how you might navigate things when one partner experiences this kind of like seismic shift? Yeah, I mean, I'm currently in a situation like that where the game change for me is a level of emotional security that I've never experienced before. There's just a level of skill and and I think alignment and similarity in terms of some of those core values that we were talking about before, communication, a desire to process, you know, and so I love to process, as I said in the beginning, like Jessica doesn't, so here's this partner that loves to do that. And she's in other relationships where that's not the case, right, to the same degree. And so it's shining a light on where in the other relationships those needs aren't getting met because of those differences. And so it it does. It's creating instability in the other relationships because of that. And so that's one of those places where it's like, okay, now we have to have a new kind of conversation. How do then the needs especially around attachment and feeling secure in those other relationships, get addressed so that it doesn't feel like this relationship becomes like a replacement for those relationships. And so really working on integrating other the other people who are involved in this dynamic, their voice of what does this feel like to you to see this level of fulfillment, satisfaction, need getting met happen, right? What is that like for you? And so what, what now emerges for you in terms of the negotiations in relationship to this relationship? Yeah. So in the relationship Dave's talking about with his partner, he's been the game changer where the bar of communication and care has just really been raised and it's beautiful. And then not all the relationships for that partner can sort of continue because the standard has been, is now higher, right? But I think with game-changing relationships, too, we can meet people and they're psychoactive for us. The same way you can take a psychoactive drug, humans can be psychoactive and suddenly you're like, whoa, there's new capacities in me. There's new desires. There's new, like all of it, right? Things that just were never in existence within myself before. 
or maybe a little bit of it. And now it's actually come alive and it's quite expansive and beautiful and also can really be very difficult for pre-existing relationships. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, it can be this really amazing experience. It can also be terrifying, especially if it's, say, happening to your partner, but not to you. And so it's one of the things that you have to recognize as a possibility when you're engaged in consensual non-monogamy is that this might happen. You know, you might develop relationships that change you. Your partner might develop relationships that change them. And you got to revisit these conversations and figure out ways to make things work because things just might be different down the road in ways that you can't possibly anticipate right now. Now, another important difference you talk about in the book is that non-monogamous people can experience non-monogamy in different ways. You know, specifically, some people experience it as a lifestyle choice. You know, it's something that they consciously choose to do, whereas others see it as an orientation and a fundamental part of who they are. And if you have two partners who see non-monogamy through a very different lens, that can potentially lead to conflict. So tell us a little bit about this spectrum of kind of how people experience non-monogamy and how you might navigate the situation if you and your partner view it through a different lens. Maybe one of you has it as an orientation or sees it as an orientation and the other sees it as a lifestyle choice. This is where it's really important to name this as a spectrum and be really clear that these are not fixed poles that people are living within. Because it's interesting to see how the ways that these can change for some people, given the relationship. Like someone could be sort of, okay, I'm consensually non-monogamous as a lifestyle, and then meet a partner that is like, it feels like it shifts to more towards an orientation. So really being clear that this is just a way to try to orient where you are in your experience and where your partner is in their experience and just ground the conversation in a way that's more explicit so that if these are differences that are manifesting in your relationship, you're talking about those in a way that's not threatening, but understanding, okay, this is why this plays out this way. This is why these needs feel so intense for me and potentially not for you. So it's really about giving people a map to orient their experience, not to say, this is who I am and what I am, and that's what you are, and never the twain shall meet. But it's like, okay, where do we fall? How are these things relevant? And what are they really highlighting for us in terms of needs and wants? Right? What is a, a lifestyle need and want versus an orientation need and want? Are those actually different in their essence? Are they not? And so that's what I'm curious about, helping people explore that spectrum. Yeah, and, and often I think they are different in their essence because someone who describes themselves, experiences themselves as orientation, this is a non-negotiable. This is a static thing about myself that isn't going to change. That's how they're bringing it, right? Whereas lifestyle is like, well, this is, is negotiable, right? It is a choice and I could make another choice. And so the weight that that has in the relationship is very different for each person. So first, just fleshing that out between or among partners, right? Where they stand with that, what that means, the implications of it. And I find it also really helpful to explore other areas that we have non-negotiables, right? I have a child, right? You might not, right? How are those things? Like I come with certain, right? I'm a package deal, you know, we have parents that we might be taking care of. We have certain careers that take us to certain places, right? Or time commitments, other orientations or identities that we have that aren't negotiable. So 
I think when we can explore that more together, that can really help to bring more acceptance to someone who's saying, I'm orientation, this is how it is, and I can't be another way. Yeah, as you were talking about that, I couldn't help but think about some of the research I've seen on kink and BDSM, talking about whether people experience that as a lifestyle choice and leisure activity versus an orientation, right? And so this conversation you're talking about can also be applicable in that situation as well, because when people are experiencing it as a lifestyle versus an orientation, they're just fundamentally different. And one isn't better or more right or correct than the other. Right. And I think having that as a context for conversation is really important because it starts to depersonalize it, right? And that way, I was saying before, making it not a pathological attempt to hurt the other person, right? You're hurting me with your behavior. These are differences that potentially we can't reconcile in the context of this relationship, but I'm able to see why this is so different for you and empathize with it. Yeah. And I think that example or the parallel of BDSM kink is is really perfect because there's people who, yeah, it's fun, they can dabble, it's spicy, you know, it brings some f- extra flavor to the sexual experience. And some people, they literally cannot get aroused unless they're in kinky play, right? It's like their neurological arousal system only works this way, right? So it's like, it's not either or. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you. And it's about differences and potentially the positive side here, right? So we've talked about how non-monogamy can sometimes lead differences to become more of an issue. Um, But other times it can lead differences to become less of an issue because it creates more space for those differences to exist. So tell us a little bit more about the flip side. You know, how can non-monogamy help relationships to thrive when there are big differences between the partners? Yeah, I think there's, you know, a funny contract, usually an unconscious contract we make in exclusive relationships that you are the one person that will meet all of my needs. And yet what's funny about it is most people know not one person can meet all my needs, right? So it creates this tension where if you're different and not meeting certain needs of mine, that means I will never, ever, ever get them met ever in my life, right? Whereas when we open up, we can go, oh, wow, you're different. And I can celebrate that difference now. I can even, it's okay, because I can, I'm not sort of bound by not getting it or only getting it here. There's more space and freedom to explore it elsewhere. So I see as a lot of people, things that might've bugged them or been very challenging for them within one partnership really can come to a new acceptance and allowance of that. Or the context that you're in, the level of involvement or entwinement or nesting you have with someone, just certain differences don't even matter. Anything you'd add to that, David? Yeah, I think in terms of the book is predicated on making a paradigmatic shift, you know, and so for me, I think learning how to just consciously or intentionally start celebrating differences, you know, and sort of seeing multiple relationships as an opportunity to revel in that to get these different parts of ourselves, the space to emerge, I think is really exciting just in and of itself. And so to approach it that way and to see difference as something really cool and energizing and exploratory, it does take a deliberate decision to start changing our frame around the way we think about differences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jessica and David. It was a pleasure to have you here. Jessica, can you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? 
Yes, they can find me at jessicafern.com. And David, where can people go to learn more about you? Yeah, they can find me at restorativerelationship.com. And the new book is called Polywise. And when does it come out? August 25th. So it's coming out soon and it's available anywhere books are sold. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast. Visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Jessica and David's book, Polly Wise. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.